Father, we thank you and we consider it such a privilege to have your word, the living word here in our hands that we can um, open up and we can hear your message to us. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who is teaching us all these things. Lord, we are so indebted to you, Lord. You are full of grace and full of truth. And then you have adopted us as your own children. Thank you for tonight. Thank you for the study. Lord, we ask that you would help us to have anointing in our ears, in our hearts, in our minds, that we might hear it and understand what you would want us to understand. I pray, Lord, that you would help me to be um, mindful of the time and then just help me to talk really, really fast, but intelligible also. Just thank you for all these mighty blessings that you poured out in our lives, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so where we've been, we've um, seen seven letters to seven churches. We've seen seven sealed judgments being opened up. We last week covered the rest of the seven trumpet judgments. We've also seen three woes. We've, we've been introduced to the unholy trinity. They are here to counterfeit the holy trinity. We saw the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. We saw locust demons. You remember the pictures? Um, that come to torture and terrify for a period of five months where men and women and boys and girls are going to cry for death, but death will elude them. The Bible says that they will not die even though they cry to die because these demon creatures are going to be so phenomenally horrible and the stings and all of that. We saw the two witnesses. We saw them come. We saw them be killed in the street and we saw them be resurrected by the spirit of God. We saw the sign of the woman in labor, remember that, who um, was rescued by God when he gave her the wings of eagle, uh, eagles to fly away, and then he's been keeping her in that wilderness place, taking care of her. And in chapter 14, where we ended last week, we saw a roll call of angels giving us a fast forward of things to come. And that's what we're going to pick up today, Revelation 15. I call it prelude to a nightmare the preparation of the final judgment of sevens. So for thousands of years, evil has been growing up and it is now fully ripened at this point of the tribulation. The grapes of God's wrath have been harvested for the final judgment. Nothing has escaped the all-seeing eyes of God. For century upon century, God has delayed this ultimate judgment in favor of mercy. Is his judgment fair at this point? Should yet another chance be given to the dwellers of the earth? Ezekiel says in 18, it says, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. In Psalm 103, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Understand here that slowness does not mean never. So the judgment is ripe in its present. Revelation 15.1 says, And then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. 
So before this Holocaust is unleashed on the world through the final seven bold judgments, John is given a glimpse of the future worshipers around the glassy sea who have loved not their lives even unto death. The picture is of those who overcame the beast by the blood of the lamb and the power of their testimony, singing the song of deliverance that Moses composed after escaping the Egyptians through the Red Sea. Revelation 15, 2 through 4. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who were victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God, of God, and they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Angels carrying calamity. Listen to what happens next. What had always been shut away from the eyes of man on earth is described in verse 5 as being opened. The temple of the tabernacle of testimony. This is a reference to the most holy place in the temple of Jerusalem or the Holy of Holies. It is a secluded place where the Ark of the Covenant had dwelt for hundreds of years, separated from the eyes of man by thick tapestries called the veil of the temple. Here, John describes it as being opened. So behold, Revelation 15, 5 through 7. After these things, I looked and the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple, clothed in linen, clean and bright, and their chests wrapped with golden sashes. And one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. Enter seven angels dressed in the righteous clothing that is reminiscent of Jesus in Revelation 1. Even including their golden sashes, they are prepared to pour out the undiluted wrath of God onto the earth. The time has finally arrived. They receive the seven bowls full of God's wrath from one of the living creatures as they make their way out of the temple. Revelation 15, 8, holy smoke, God's Shekinah glory. Don't y'all like holy smoke? Y'all remember Batman? Holy smoke, God. Holy smoke, Robin. Okay. All right, so from the time of the dedication of the wilderness tabernacle in Moses' day, the Bible is replete with examples of God's Shekinah glory filling the spaces where his presence resides. The glory cloud or smoke would fill a space so completely that no man could enter in. Exodus tells us about that. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This holy smoke is repeated at the dedication of Solomon's temple in Isaiah's vision of heaven in Isaiah 6 and in Ezekiel's vision by the Kibar River. Notice that here in Revelation 15, the smoke remains in the temple until the final seven plagues are completed on the earth. Revelation 15, 8 says, And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Revelation 16, we're moving right along. I called it shake and bake. You'll see why. Okay, so... With a Jewish remnant safely hidden away in an undisclosed location and being nourished by God, the final act of God's vengeance unfolds. This begins the last cycle of seven judges, judgments on the earth. And if you recall, God's judgment began with seven seals 
followed by seven trumpet judgments, and now the seven bowls of God's wrath will be poured out. Revelation 16, 1 through 12, we're going to read that whole thing. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and a harmful and painful sore afflicted the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became blood like that of a dead man, and every living thing in the sea died. How much stuff was alive? Nothing. Nothing. Every living thing in the sea died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel of the waters saying, Righteous are you, the one who is and who was, O holy one, because you judged these things. And for they poured out the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. They deserve it. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. And the fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun, and it was given power to scorch people with fire. And the people were scorched with fierce heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened, and they gnawed their tongues because of pain. And they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. So we have a picture of the bowl judgments here. Let's just go over them again. Bowl one is festering sores. These harmful, painful sores are directly connected with having the mark of the beast. Did you get that? The only people that have the sores are the ones who have marked the beast. Whether the process of attaining the mark caused the sores through the introduction of a bacteria or not, the fact is that anyone with the mark will have the sores. The second bowl is bloody seas. Prior to this judgment, John noted a judgment that caused a third of the sea to be contaminated with blood back in Revelation 8. But now the entire sea is made blood, resulting in the death of all sea life. This is the end of oceans forever, right here. This is the end of the oceans. In the new earth, there will be no more sea, and thus no more sea life. It's interesting to consider here that John is exiled in the middle of the Aegean Sea, and it is the sea that is separating him from everything he loved, every person, the church. He's sitting there alone in exile. So imagine that's such a big sticking point with him that there's not going to be any more sea. The fourth bowl is the sun scorcher. Whereas an earlier judgment diminished the sun by a third, This judgment heats it up. Now earth's inhabitants will experience a little hell on earth. Malachi tells us about this. He says, for behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Isaiah says this way, 
Therefore, a curse devours the earth and its inhabitants suffer for their guilt. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are scorched and few men are left. And then Isaiah 30 says, Moreover, the light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be sevenfold as the light of seven days in the day when the Lord binds up the brokenness of his people and heals the wounds inflicted by his blow. I just love the way God's word is a commentary on God's word. Do you hear it? We see it in Revelation, but you can look back in those Old Testament prophets and you can see that they're talking about the same event here. Consider the living conditions on the earth. They're steadily deteriorating. People are covered in sores that won't heal. Water is in short supply, and if you get it, it's distasteful. The sun is burning brighter, causing extreme heat and rapid evaporation of water sources. The moon shines all night in such a way as to cause sleep to be elusive. And the great ice store in the polar ice caps could melt and inundate and decimate some of the world's largest cities that lie below sea level, like New Orleans, below sea level, right? Amsterdam, below sea level. There's about seven cities that are below sea level, major cities. Okay, bowl number five, I've said lights out for the beast's lair, okay? Bowl five has been specifically reserved for the great political leader and the ruler of the earth, the Antichrist, the beast, and his cohorts and capital city. Whereas the rest of the earth is bombarded by the sevenfold strength of the sun, the capital of the Antichrist is swaddled in thick darkness, reminiscent of the Egyptian plague. Y'all remember the darkness? Exodus tells us, then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. Bowl six, a pathway prepared. Revelation 16, 12 says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings from the east. The great river Euphrates is dried up in preparation to become a king's highway for Armageddon. There's no way to discern how the sixth angel will dry up this great river because the Bible does not say, but we do know that it will be used by the kings of the east to make their way to war. It's interesting to speculate about who these kings might be. What are the nations that exist in the east? Aren't they the populous nations of the continent of Asia? Asia's population makes up nearly 61% of that of the whole earth. Whatever army might arise in the east would be huge by any standard. And we saw when Kelly pre prepared his thing, he talked about um, how he showed us pictures of the Euphrates already drying up. Very interesting. Re Revelation 16, 13 through 16. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the entire world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his clothes so that he will not walk about naked and people will not see his shame. And they gathered them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Hermageddon. Please note the third of the seven blessings in Revelation 16, 15 is placed here as an encouragement to believers who are in the midst of these dire circumstances. 
John takes a break from describing bold judgments to tell us about these miracle-working, demon-possessed amphibians. They come out of the lying mouths of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and they jump to the four corners of the earth to entice all the kings to gather for war against Almighty God. Literal? Figurative? What do you think? I don't know. We just know whatever he, a demon can go places, can't he? I've had one on me all day today. <laughs> I've been fighting a fight all day today because the revelation of God is something that Satan does not want to happen. He doesn't want you to hear the revelation. And so he was going to do his best to keep you from hearing it today. And what motivates these kings and these army and their armies to oppose God in battle? Their hatred and blaming of God for every inconvenience and every plague they've endured. No amount of preaching or mercy has softened their hearts to repentance. Revelation 16, 9, and 11. Remember, they were scorched by the fierce heat. And they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. And verse 11 said, And cursed the God of heaven for their pain and their sores. They did not repent of their deeds. Armageddon, the word, means mountain of Megiddo, and it is an ancient town located 60 miles north of Jerusalem. With the surrounding valleys, including the Jezreel Valley, the gathered armies will completely encompass the city of Jerusalem, while the 144,000 sealed Hebrew men remain encamped atop Mount Zion. For a time, the Antichrist will make headway in his attempt to defeat Jerusalem and take her captive. Zechariah tells us, Behold, I'm about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. And then Zechariah 14 says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. But God... The lamb will prevail against the armies of the beast. Zechariah further says, Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. And Joel 3.16 says, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. And then Zephaniah tells us, Therefore wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day when I rise up to seize the prey. For my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, to pour out upon them my indignation, all my burning anger. For in the fire of my jealousy, all the earth shall be consumed. And then Zechariah 14, 12 says, And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. For their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Wow. Wow. Bowl 7 is the earthquake. I call it the earthquake. Capital T-H-E. Revelation 16, 17 through 19 says, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake such as there had not been since mankind came to be upon the earth. 
so great an earthquake was it, and so mighty. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. So when the scene is perfectly set and all the armies have arrived in the area surrounding Jerusalem, the final angel of judgment, that seventh angel holding that seventh bowl, will begin to pour the contents of his toxic brew. With this bowl poured out into the air, God's judgment is complete. He says, it is done. The earth begins to shake. Heavenly voices cry out with thunder and lightning. Nothing is held back. There have been three sets of judgments, seals, trumpets, and now seven bowls. This final judgment ends all judgment with the greatest ever of all earthquakes. Haggai 2 says it this way, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord of hosts. Amen. Isaiah, Isaiah 24 says, Terror and the pit and the snare are upon you, O inhabitant of the earth. He who flees at the sound of the terror shall fall into the pit, and he who climbs out of the pit shall be caught in the snare. For the windows of heaven are opened, and the foundations of the earth tremble. The earth is utterly broken. The earth is split apart. The earth is violently, violently shaken. The earth staggers like a drunken man. It sways like a hut. Its transgression lies heavily upon it, and it falls and will not rise again. On that day, the Lord will punish the hosts of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. They will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. They will be shut up in a prison, and after many days, they will be punished. Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed. For the Lord of hosts reigns on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and his glory will be before his elders. What are the effects of the earthquake? A Revelation 16, 19 to 20 tells us, The great city was split into three parts, then the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great was remembered as in the sight of God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath, and every island fled, and no mountains were found. Wow. Jerusalem, the great city, will be divided into three parts, yet not destroyed. Zechariah tells us, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. The cities of the nations fall, the Bible says. Consider the great cities of the nations of the world, which are built at higher elevations. Chicago, Mexico City, Caracas, Sao Paulo, Johannesburg, Cairo, Peking, New Delhi, Moscow, Berlin, Paris, all of them. Higher elevations, they will be devastated. They will be decimated. And then Babylon, the capital city of the beast, will be destroyed. More to come about Babylon in chapter 17. The topography of the earth will undergo a cataclysmic alteration as islands and mountains disappear. The great mountains of granite and limestone will break apart and fill up the basins of the sea, creating a new sea level where islands no longer exist. Isaiah 40 tells us, Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, 
and the tough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And then finally in Revelation 16, we get to the last verse, of verse 21, and it's the last hurrah. It's the hailstorm. The earthquake was bad. The hailstorm's going to be significant. And huge hailstones weighing about a talent each come down from heaven upon people and people blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because the hailstone plague was extremely severe. How bad? This hailstorm will fall upon the gathered armies in the Valley of Megiddo, where the 100-pound hailstones will indeed trample out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. There will be no place to run for cover. There will be no rescue coming. God will be vindicated, yet the people will continue to curse him from their stubborn hearts, even until their final breaths. As ripe grapes burst under pressure, these armies will likewise burst as they are crushed beneath the massive weight of the heavenly hail. How much blood? We already looked at that. Y'all remember? 180 miles long up to the height of a horse's bridle will be the depth of the blood that will be gathered in this 180 mile long trench. Revelation 17, rated MA, mature audiences only. The Bible can be called the tale of two cities because it is a comparison and contrast of the cities of Jerusalem, which has been mentioned over 800 times in the Bible, and Babylon, which is mentioned 287 times in the Bible. It's important to understand some necessary vocabulary and symbolism that is used throughout the Bible when referring to Babylon. Fornication, prostitution, and sexual immorality are themes consistent with the idolatry of God's bride. Who is the bride? The church. Israel is said to have committed adultery anytime she stooped to idol worship. Jeremiah 5 tells us this, How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped to the houses of whores. Hosea says, In the house of Israel, I have seen a horrible thing. Ephraim's whoredom is there. Israel is defiled. Hosea further says, they shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. My people inquire of a piece of wood and their walking staff gives them oracles for a spirit of whoredom has led them astray and they have left their God to play the whore. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God for the spirit of whoredom is within them and they know not the Lord. So, but what about Babylon? As we recall in earlier lessons, though Babylon was an ancient city where Judah was taken into captivity, y'all remember 586 BC, something like that. I might have the date exactly right. They were taken into captivity. Daniel was amongst those that went into captivity to Babylon. Babylon is also representative of everything, anything that is a substitute of the worship of the one true God whether it is materialism, humanism, hedonism, false religion, political systems, etc. All of those are representative of Babylon. Yet Babylon, as the actual city, cannot be ignored in her role in this drama. Saddam Hussein, believing himself to be a direct descendant of King Nebuchadnezzar, that, okay, of course, 
Um, he believed to be a direct descendant. He started to rebuild the city of Babylon. Did y'all know that? He started the rebuilding of the city in Babylon in 2003. In, in 2003, I'm sorry, it was forcibly stopped. The rebuilding was forcibly stopped when the U.S. troops went in there during the war. In 2006, U.N. officials and Iraqi leaders issued their intentions to create a cultural center at the site. And by 2009, the ruins of the city, along with Hussein's building project, were opened to tourists. Even though the World Monument Fund has done some work at the site, currently there's no work being done there now. But this is no indication for the future of Babylon. It's easy to speculate that a powerful, political, international leader could choose to rebuild the city and locate his headquarters there on the bank of the Euphrates River. We're going to go to this Revelation 17, 1 through 6. Mystery Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes. Previously, we met this bedazzled bad girl in Revelation 14 and 16, but long before John is introduced to her here, Jeremiah describes her like this. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drunk of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. John tells us in Revelation 17, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed acts of sexual immorality, and those who live on the earth became drunk with the wine of her sexual immorality. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, full of blasphemous names, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold, precious stones, and pearls, holding in her hand a gold cup full of abomination and of the unclean things of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead a name was written, a mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. When I saw her, I wondered greatly. There's a picture of the horror of Revelation 17. Babylon is representative of a godless religious and economic system is depicted in chapter 17 as riding on a beast. See her? Okay. The beast upon which she is riding is none other than the beast. Who is he? The Antichrist. The Antichrist. He has now become a one world government and he controls everything from his capital city. The beast, though beneath the woman, only appears to be subjugated by her. But as we will soon learn, the beast is controlling the woman. In plain words, the Antichrist dictatorship will use the one world religious system to go as far as he can by playing upon people's desire to worship something. When he has completely controlled the world, he will turn on the woman and he will devour her, having no more use for her. What he really desires is worship for himself to the exclusion of all else. The woman and the beast, remember, are really only the puppets of the dragon, who is Satan. Before her ultimate demise, the woman appears as drunk with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. In the years since Jesus' resurrection, approximately 70 million Christians have died for their faith, according to Christianity Today. World Christian Database reports that roughly 1,093,000 Christians were martyred between 2000 and 2010. On an average day today, a Christian dies every six minutes 
because they are a Christian. With that amount of bloodshed, it's easy to see how the woman is said to be drunk with the blood of the saints. Okay, Revelation 17, 7 through 16. I call heads, horns, hills, what? Let's see if we can make heads or tails out of this. And the angel said to me, why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who live on the earth, whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is not and will come. Here is the mind which has fault, which has wisdom. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains upon which the woman sits, and they are seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain a little while. Whew, this is getting tough. The beast which was and is not is himself also an eighth and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their power and authority to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the prostitute sits are people's and multitudes and nations and languages and the ten horns which you saw are the and the beast these will hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire let's see if we can peel back some of these layers we can use the information provided by john to conclude that the seven heads are really seven mountains which ultimately symbolize seven kings that's what he said pairing john's narrative with the prophecies of daniel we can speculate somewhat confidently that the seven kingdoms are those depicted in the image of Daniel 2. At the time of John's writing, the kingdom that is present is what kingdom? When John is writing this, do you know what kingdom is present? It's Rome. Okay, so it's the kingdom of Rome, the sixth of the seven kingdoms. The final kingdom will be that of the beast. And a ten-nation alliance will last seven years or less. It's called a little while. Up to this point in history, up to today, this point in history, there have only been six kingdoms that were said to have ruled the world in its time. Babylonia, Egypt, Assyria, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Each of these kingdoms ruled for centuries at their respective times in history. Whereas the seventh worldwide kingdom, which has not yet come, will rule a very short time in comparison to these ancient kingdoms. Taking Daniel's prophecy into account, the seventh kingdom will be an alliance of ten rulers, world powers, which are the ten horns, and from these ten leaders will emerge the eighth, the Antichrist, or the beast. This ten-nation alliance under the influence of the beast will ultimately Turn on the whore, having used her to gain their own standing through the power of the many godless religious systems that she represents. And as with any prostitute, once she is used, she is discarded and despised. There's the Daniel 2 image. So you can see the, the different um, 
the different uh, kingdoms there represented. And Revel y'all can still look at that. I'm going to read Revelation 17, 16 through 18. And then the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the prostitute and will make her desolate and naked, and they will eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Still confusing, but we're going to un unlock a few more mysteries in chapter 18, which is called Babylon, the funeral pyre. The last time we saw Babylon represented as the political headquarters of the beast, rather than the whoring godless religion, the fifth bowl of God's judgment was being poured out on it. Remember, they poured out on the, the kingdom of the beast, the city of the beast. And what happened? It was darkness, so dark that they could feel the darkness and they had pain and they were gnawing their tongues. That was the, one of the bold judgments. Revelation now takes a magnified look at the destruction of the city of Babylon and all that it will entail. So this is a fast forward rewind thing. One of those kind of things where he explains it in the bowl, but now you're going to hear the more specific nature of what happened when that bowl is poured out on the city. Okay, so um, Babylon, the godless religious system, has already been overthrown by the Ten Nation Alliance, but the epicenter of the beast powerhouse, also referred to as Babylon, is in the bullseye of God's next target. Think of Babylon as a two-sided coin, if you will. One side represents the godless religious system, and the other side represents the beast's capital city. They have the same name. Why? Because they're they have the same attributes. Do y'all do you see the, the... Okay, just making sure y'all getting that. All right. So Babylon is now the capital city of the whole world. And all the world's capital is flowing in and out of it. Okay, so Revelation describes in picturesque language the, specific, the specifics of the city's demise, which Isaiah alluded to thousands of years previously. Revelation tells us, after these things, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was illuminated from his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have fallen because of the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth have committed acts of sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have become rich from the excessive wealth of her luxury. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not participate in her sins and receive any of her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her offenses. Pay her back, even as she has paid, and give back to her double according to her deeds. And the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the extent that she glorified herself and lived luxuriously, to the same extent, give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day, her plagues will come, plague and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire. For the Lord God who judges her is strong. Listen to how Isaiah puts it. 
Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now therefore hear this, you lower, you lover of pleasures, who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. That's important to remember. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. What is the impact of Babylon's fall? The sudden fiery demise of Babylon, the city will have a global impact as its flames are seen around the world on news stations. Babylon's destruction will herald the true end of commerce as we know it. I'm not going to read this next passage in, in depth um, or totally, Revelation 18, 9 through 19. It's very repetitive, but suffice it to say, the kings of the earth are going to see what's happening to this city as it's demolished, as it's coming to its end. And they are going to weep and mourn and cry, as will the merchants, because everything they're doing is going through the capital city where our capital is running in and out, okay? It's the money center of the world. So as they see the demise of this city, everyone is going to grieve, especially these people in power. And that's what this, this um, scripture passage is saying. They see the smoke of her burning, and they say, what city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and they were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich from her prosperity. For in one hour she has been laid waste. What did we hear Isaiah say? In an hour. We've heard Revelation say in a day. So it's going to be a very quick, we don't know what's going to happen, but we know that God can handle it. He can handle the destruction of a city in a minute, can't he? What's heaven's response? Verse 20 says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. As is so often the case, what God has deemed good, the earth has called bad. Now in living color, the earth is wailing and mourning for the fall of Babylon, while all heaven is celebrating with joy. Woe to all who contradict heaven's divine verdicts. Woe to all today who contradict heaven's divine verdicts. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, and who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. We're living today in a society that is perfectly described by this verse. And what does God say? Woe. And, I, you know, I check myself. I pray that you'll check yourself. When we begin to um, call good those things that God has meant for destruction because of their evil, when we become desensitized to the sin of the world and we begin to partake, even if we're just sitting by in silence, God says, whoa. Verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 21 a sinking millstone, listen to this. Then a strong angel picked up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, 
so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will never be found again. As serious as Babylon's destruction is, it's almost as if this mighty angel in verse 21 is relishing the destruction as he hurls the millstone down in demonstration of what has happened. Interestingly, Jeremiah used a similar analogy more than 2,500 years ago with regards to Babylon. Jeremiah said, when you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates and say, thus shall Babylon sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I am bringing upon her and they shall become exhausted. Thus far the words of Jeremiah. Interesting. Chapter 18 concludes with Babylon's epitaph written by Jesus. Here it is. And the sound of harpists, musicians, flute players, and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. And no craftsman of any craft will ever be found in you again. And the sound of a mill will never be heard in you again. And the light of a lamp will never shine in you again. And the voice of the groom and the bride will never be heard in you again. For your merchants were the powerful people of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your witchcraft. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. Not good. Revelation 19, let's take a turn. I call it all, all hail King Jesus. Hallelujah. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgment, it are, His judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great prostitute who is corrupting the earth with her sexual immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. This shout of praise, hallelujah, is only used in this one chapter in the entire New Testament. The word hallelujah, only used in this one chapter of the whole New Testament. Its literal meaning is halal, praise, and yah, short for Jehovah. Thus, praise the Lord. And all of heaven's inhabitants join in that hallelujahs. Even the 24 elders and the four living creatures worship God with their hallelujahs. Revelation 19, 7 through 9, I call save the date. Let's rejoice. You got to save the date. I got one today in the mail. I got to save the date. We're getting married next year. Save the date. Okay, so let's talk about this. Let's rejoice and be glad and give glory to him because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Marriage has always been used by God to describe, to describe the relationship between himself and his people through Jesus. Now that the redemption of the world has been accomplished and sin has been vanquished, the wedding date is set, 
and we observe the fourth blessing of Revelation. It is reserved for those who have an invitation to the wedding. Isaiah 54, 5 says, For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth, he is called. Second Corinthians tells us, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. The bride, having no righteousness of her own, is clothed in the righteousness of Christ, who enables her to walk in purity and in forgiveness through the power of the Spirit. She is made ready because of the bridegroom. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. This is one of my favorite parts of Revelation. I want to talk to you all about the wedding customs of Israel in the time of Jesus. Let's talk about betrothal, first of all. You probably know about it, but let's just cover it real quick. Betrothal, what happens? The groom's father makes arrangements with the parents of the bride at least one year in advance of a wedding, and sometimes even when the bride and the groom are children. An appropriate bride price is is negotiated that the groom's father then pays to the father of the bride when the arrangement is solidified. The marriage covenant is now in place and is as binding as the marriage itself. Keep in mind that it is the groom's father who pays the bride price. First Corinthians tells us, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Ephesians 5 tells us, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, and she might be holy and without blemish. So the groom's father pays the bride price to the bride's father. Number two, Preparation of the groom. The groom then returns to his father's house after the betrothal is negotiated and contracted to begin work on his living quarters that he will share with his wife. These quarters were typically built onto the main structure of his father's house. This process took generally one year during which time the bride and the groom remained separated. John 14 says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Troubled, Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I like to think of Jesus today with that hammer in his hand, building our rooms, right? Getting our place ready to come and get us. What is the bride doing during the preparation in Israel at this time? What is the bride doing? Brides must begin her at least one year long preparation for her wedding day. This process includes a ritual immersion for her ritual cleansing. 
Clothes must be purchased or sewn in preparation for the big day and her life thereafter. The bride prepares herself, sanctifies herself, separates herself for the coming groom. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that has that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Are y'all putting these things together? Are you putting them together? So then the next thing that happens is the return of the groom. At the time of the groom's father's choosing, at the time of the groom's father's choosing, and when all the preparations have been made, the groom returns to the home of the bride to claim her. This is the time of the wedding ceremony. Typically, only a few people would be invited. Matthew 24, 36 says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. And John 14, 3 says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Has he come yet? Where is the bride of Christ at this point in the revelation? Remember that she has already been united with her groom at the time of the rapture of the church, and now she's awaiting the wedding feast. 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Revelation 19.7 says, Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. The next thing that happens is the wedding feast. The groom will then bring his beloved bride home to her new place where a seven-day feast with many guests will be celebrated. There is no joy like that of the wedding feast. Unless we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, we will be found unprepared and will not be admitted to the wedding. Jesus describes the wedding feast in several parables, including one in which a guest is found to be improperly clothed and subsequently thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. He makes it clear throughout scripture that to be the bride of Christ is to be clothed in his righteousness. Are you ready for your groom? Are you ready for your groom? If he comes today. There's some nice music going on here somewhere. Okay, special Holy Ghost hotline. I like that. So there's the marriage feast. Okay, so now we're going to rewind again. <laughs> Let's look at um, Revelation 19, Arm Yourselves, it's Armageddon. We've already talked about Armageddon, hadn't we? 
Now we're talking about it again, but in a little bit more detail. Coming out of the idyllic wedding feast scene where the bride is adorned in her beautiful white linen, all is a great sigh of relief until verse 11 begins. Once again, there is a rewinding to a battlefield that is anything but forgettable, yet we would love to forget it. Armageddon. So Revelation 19, 11 through 16. The protagonist is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Listen, and I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, righteousness, he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And there he is. Both judge and warrior is none other than Jesus who enters the scene. In our mind's eye, it is easy to see this majestic hero on his white horse. Who is like him? He is faithful. He is true. He is the worthy one who alone is righteous and able to judge the heart of man and then render the appropriate sentence. He has merciful, mercifully extended this moment of judgment, pleading with mankind to repent, to receive forgiveness and be saved. But no amount of preaching Pleading or punishing has turned the hearts of man to Jesus with the exception of the redeemed few. All have been repeatedly offered the way of salvation, but few have chosen it. We're reminded in 2 Peter, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. In 1 Timothy, says, This is good and is pleasing in the sight of God and Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Ezekiel says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? And then Acts says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You notice that Jesus has a name on him that's unknown. Jesus is described again as having flames of fire in his eyes right here. Tender mercies have been replaced here for the cries of judgment and vengeance, for the eyes of judgment and vengeance. He wears the crowns of victory as he makes a final and short end to his enemies. He has been given a name that we don't know, yet it causes all to bow before him. Philippians 2 says, y'all know this, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And then we see in Revelation 19, 13 through 15, he is dressed to kill. You ever been dressed to kill? He leads his armies to battle, all dressed in white linen. Who are these armies but the redeemed of all the ages? They are not armed because they don't need to be. They won't get their hands dirty. 
His clothes are soiled with the bloody work of judgment as he annihilates his enemies with the sword of his mouth. Who can stand against such a king? Malachi says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller soap. And Jude tells us it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied saying, behold, the Lord comes with 10,000s of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all of the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. His name is the word of God, which when spoken brought into existence all of creation and which will also bring an end to his enemies. Isaiah 11 says, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. And then Second Thessalonians 2 says, And then the lawless one will be revealed, when the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth, and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Words are powerful, reminded in Proverbs, aren't we? Death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. As his sword, the word of God, exits his mouth, Jesus will render his enemies incapacitated. It will only require his word and nothing else to claim victory at Armageddon. Likewise for us today, his word accomplishes everything he commands. Do you believe it? The question is, what will it take for us to believe it? Are we living lives of faith, believing that his word is truth? Or are we living as one who doubts? Let's examine our lives. Isaiah 55 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. And then Hebrews tells us, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Consider the promises he has made. What are you trusting him for today? What are you trusting him for today? Don't ever lose hope in his word. Finally, a different kind of supper in Revelation 19:17. He says, "Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in mid-heaven, "Come, assemble for the great feast of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders." the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all people, both free and slaves, small and great. So while heaven has enjoyed the wedding feast, a different kind of meal is being prepared on the earth and it's sure to turn your stomach. An invitation is extended by the angel and the sun to the vultures of the earth to come and eat the delicacy of human flesh that will be left behind in the valley of Megiddo. All that will remain of the armies of the beast are the bodies Millions and millions of them. But first, the battle. Matthew tells us wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Zephaniah says, be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Armageddon, the best laid plans of mice and men. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. 
These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Though the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet have made intricate plans that they believe to be unstoppable, their plans are no match for the king of kings as he renders a final decision. Joel tells us multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The first mention in scripture of the dreaded lake of fire is right here. The destination of the beast and the false prophet. They are the first inhabitants, but they won't be the last. Daniel 7 says, I looked them, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. This lake of fire is what Jesus and the prophets described as the place where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Today, this place is prepared, but is yet uninhabited. Today, it's there. There's no, no one in it. Okay, It's not hell that we know of right now. It's a lake of fire prepared, but no one's in it yet. Matthew 25 says, Then he will say to them on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Isaiah says, For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Then Matthew 13 says, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, they will gather out of the kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, in Jesus' day, Jerusalem's garbage dump was called Gehenna. It was a popular illustration of what hell or the lake of fire would be like. Gehenna was a place where rubbish, trash, dead animals, and the bodies of dead criminals were dumped and burned. The fires never went out. The only thing that could possibly survive this environment was the maggot. The maggots would gnaw at the bits and pieces left by the fires. The Bible often uses the personal pronoun, their worm. For example, their worm does not die. To suggest the personal ownership of the gnawing, torturing worm that eats away for eternity at the conscience of the unbeliever in hell. They will each remain in flames and in torment. How bad will this place be? It is to be avoided at all costs even if it requires, as Jesus stated, to cut off your hand or gouge out your eye. Remember? Okay. He says, and if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. We're going to skip that. Okay. Of course, he was speaking with hyperbole to make the point of the seriousness of unrepentant sin and to where it ultimately leads. We must radically excise sin from our lives. Now, Revelation 20, I say tying up loose ends. The battle of Armageddon is over. The enemies of Jesus are dead. The beast and the false prophet have been dispatched to their eternal home. But what about the dragon? How to train a dragon. Revelation 20, 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he took hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years 
And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short while. See the chaining of the dragon. John is straightforward in his rendering of the next events in the sequence. Simply put, God is a big enough, strong enough chain to hold Satan, and he will use it. Once the bottomless pit is unlocked, the dragon is captured, constrained, and conveyed to the pit for 1,000 years. His story is not yet over. It's just paused for a little while. Now let's look briefly at the millennium. Next week, Kelly is going to present an entire message on the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. So don't miss it. I'm going to cover it briefly. A lot can happen in a thousand years. Then I saw thrones and they that sat on them and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. I hope you caught the fifth blessing of Revelation in verse six. To be a part of the first resurrection is called a blessing. So on the heels of his great victory at Armageddon, which is, by the way, the second coming, When he comes at Armageddon, that is the second coming of Christ, okay? Jesus will be established as the king of the earth. All the redeemed souls who have ever lived will make up his great victorious army and will now take their rightful thrones on the earth for a thousand years. 1 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? And Daniel says, until the ancient of days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, then the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. The standing and responsibility of the reigning redeemed will be determined by Jesus based on his perfect record keeping of the righteous acts of the saints while they lived on the earth. That's when will that when will he determine that? Do y'all know what's it called? The Bema seat judgment. The great white throne is for unbelievers only. The great white throne is just for unbelievers. When believers will be judged, it will be judged for our righteous acts on the earth, for rewards, for your standing for all eternity will come before Jesus at the Bema seat judgment. Now, who is on the earth to be ruled over? This is a thousand years. So who's here? The armies of the beast have been killed. But what about everyone else alive that were not in the army? There will be millions of people who have taken the mark of the beast but not had not been killed by the plagues. There will be those who avoided the mark and hid themselves from the beast executioners. What of these people? Respectively, it is the time of the separating of the goats and the sheep, as described by Jesus in Matthew 25. He says, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. 
Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me. You cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The final group on earth will be the Israelites. If you recall, it will be at Jesus' second coming that Israel will recognize him as their Messiah and be saved. Zechariah tells us, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on whom, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then Zechariah 13 says, On that day there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Paul tells us in Romans 11, lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. Those of the first resurrection include Jesus, the first fruits of them that slept, and those saints who were raised from death in Jerusalem immediately after Christ's resurrection. You remember they walked around? Okay, and Matthew 27 tells us about that. When the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, right after the crucifixion we're talking, the earth shook, the rocks were split, the tombs were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. They are part of the first resurrection. The people who were raptured are part of the first resurrection. I'm not going to um, read that rapture thing again. Let's say, just suffice it to say it's on there. The two witnesses are part of the first resurrection, remember? And then the remaining tribulation martyrs, those people who are under the altar of God crying out for um, vengeance, they are also part of the first um, the first resurrection. The second death will have no power over any of these. Finally, we see in Revelation 27 through 10, Satan's swan song. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, and they came up on the broad plain of the earth, and they surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and the fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. In 1,000 years of peace and prosperity with no war or crime or outward compulsion to sin, the earth will have been re-inhabited as babies are being born and mankind is living to very old ages like before the flood of Moses, uh, flood of Noah, excuse me. Jesus is on the throne and he will lead the whole earth in a peaceful existence. What is not to like? Isaiah talks about he shall judge between the nations and shall dis decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Then he further says in 35, Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This is all the millennial reign Kelly's going to cover next week. No more shall there be in it an infant who lives but a few days. 
or an old man who does not fill out his days, for the young man shall die a hundred years old, and the sinner a hundred years old shall be accursed. Will it be easy to have faith in the one who is now seen? We have faith in the one we can't see. Will it require faith at all to believe that Jesus is true and right? With Satan out of the way for a thousand years, besides man's own sinful, selfish inclination, there will not be much temptation to sin. So who needs a savior now? Revelation 20 verse 8 blows our minds as we see Satan's power to deceive the nations once he's released from the pit. Multitudes who have not trusted in the saving power of Jesus and his cross will follow Satan in battle, even after they have enjoyed the benefits of Christ's kingdom. Man's proclivity to sin is undisputed. Who are Gog and Magog? That's not God. That's a misprint in your, um, in your handout. Kelly covered Gog and Magog already. Gog and Magog, ancient enemies of the Lord. Magog was the grandson of Noah, who founded a great nation north of the Black and Caspian Sea, which is present-day Russia. Gog was the name of its king. Exactly who Gog and Magog are and how they will be used by Satan in the final earthly battle is unknown because the Bible doesn't specify. Suffice it to say, there will be millions of unsaved people on the earth ready to be led astray by Satan in a war against Jesus. And the end is quick. Did y'all catch how quick it was? God breathes an, an earth-scorching, enemy-devouring fire from heaven and just annihilates them all. Like that. As for Satan, he's thrown into the lake of fire to finally join his compatriots, the beast and the false prophet. Verses 11 through 15 says, Then I saw a great white throne of him and him and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them according to their deeds." Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The throne. A most incredible scene is set. Words fail to adequately convey what happens next as God in his ineffable glory arrives to meet out well-deserved judgment against everyone who refused the redemption he offered them through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen Almighty God. Here, his very presence collides with Earth's atmosphere. And in a singular moment, the Earth is dissolved. All that John sees is a great white throne and the face of God revealed as heaven and Earth flee away. The old Earth has accomplished its divine purpose and the Creator has now disposed of it. Second Peter tells us, But by the same word, the heavens and the Earth that now exist are stored up for fire being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. All the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in living lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. And in Matthew 24, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. All that is left is the great white throne of God. 
All that is left is the great white throne of God. Strikingly absent are the rainbow around the throne, representative of God's mercy. And the slain lamb, redemption of man's sin. It's just God in all his immortal glory. Final roll call, Revelation 20. We're going to read this part again. Well, maybe we won't. I'm just going to summarize. All the dead are brought before the great white throne and judged. As the bodies of the unbelieving dead of all generations since Adam are resurrected and their spirits released from Hades, they are judged by the standard they chose while alive. They had refused the covering offered by Jesus' blood and chose instead to take their chances doing things their own way. But there is only one way to the Father, right? As stated by Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except by me. John 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Unfortunately, every deed, whether accomplished in the light of day or under the cloak of darkness, and every word spoken, every secret motivation, every inclination of the heart are not only known by God, but have been recorded in his books for judgment day. Each person will stand before the throne as his deeds are revealed before everyone. The final book, the Lamb's Book of Life, will at last be checked. Any name not found there will receive the ultimate death sentence, the lake of fire. God is surely able to inflict his punishments in perfect justice, individually tailored. The lake of fire will not be the one-size-fits-all punishment, but each inhabitant will receive the punishment that their own deeds require for eternity. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The bad news has been tempered with the best news, right? Are you ready to meet your maker? If you've heard these scriptures all your life but never really understood what God paid to so dearly to save you from, Revelation certainly should have given you the information you needed. Don't delay. Hear his voice. He loves you. Revelation 21, the climax of God's epic adventure. I realize the time. I'm going to continue. Beginning in Genesis and weaving its way through 66 separate books, the divine plot of God's epic plan for his children finally culminates in these last two chapters of Revelation as he unveils the long-awaited inheritance of the saints. With the destruction and subsequent replacement of the earth and heavens, as discussed in Revelation 20, verse 11, many things will be changed from what is familiar to us today. True paradise. Chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among the people, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain, for the first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write, for these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. The one who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God. He will be my son. But for the cowardly and the unbelieving and the abominable and the murderers and the sexually immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So here's the incomplete, incomplete list of changes that will occur following God's final judgment. Heaven and earth will be new after having been destroyed by a fiery cataclysm. We've already read this partly. I'm going to pick up 2 Peter verse 11. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. There will be no more sea since there will no longer be a need for the sea. Currently, seas and oceans cover approximately 70% of the earth's surface and are necessary to maintain the earth's hydrologic cycle. The new earth will not be dependent on a hydrologic cycle any longer for its maintenance since God will provide the light and the river of life will be the perfect water supply. The new Jerusalem will descend to earth having been completed by Jesus for his bride and now herself representing a bride in all her beauty. This is the home sweet home longed for by every believer. Hebrews says, For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I'm not going to read the rest of these. You can um, refer to them later there in your notes. God will dwell among mankind forever. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem and lived on the earth, he was called Emmanuel, or God with us. Yet he only lived here 33 years. Now he will dwell with us forever. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And Leviticus says, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. Then there will be no longer death, sorrow, crying, or pain as God removes the great curse from mankind and the earth and then wipes away every tear. Jesus, having become the curse for us all, took away the effect and the sting of the curse on the cross. This now becomes reality in every sense. In Isaiah, it says, He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of His people He will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And Galatians says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Everything will not only be made new, but will remain new as the law of entropy. 
which is the gradual decline into disorder, will be finally repealed. No more rationing supplies or necessities. There will be more than enough of everything. No more worn shoes. No more worn clothes. They will be perpetually new. No more wrinkled skin or sagging bodies. They will remain youthful, energetic, fresh, and they will never grow tired. There will be more, no more waiting for the glorious conclusion. No more thirst for things to be made right. Just as Jesus was the word that brought this world into existence and the word that consummated God's plan for man's redemption, he is also the last word, the omega. There are no loose ends. It's finished. Each and every promise God made is fulfilled. The inheritance is given. There's nothing left to wait for. Today, we stake our lives on these promises. Each one of these promises becoming our breath, our strength, and our hope to keep on going. This yearning and praying and believing will all be finally realized as we inherit it all. No more bad guys ever. They refuse salvation, enough said. The wife of the lamb. Then, then I'm, I'm really coming close to the end now. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me saying, Come here, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very valuable stone, like a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the gates 12 angels and the names were written on the gates, which are the names of 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, three on the west. And the wall of the city had 12 foundation stones and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square, and its length is as great as its width. And he measured the city with the rod, 12,000 stadia, length, length, width, and height are equal. And he measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. The material of the wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation stones of the city wall were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation stone was jasper, the second sapphire, then chalcedony, emerald, sardonyx, sardius, chrysolite, beryl, topaz, chrysopace, jacinth, and amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And he said, I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God has illuminated, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed, and they will bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's New Jerusalem. John already briefly mentioned the Lamb's wife, New Jerusalem, in Revelation 21, 2, as she descended from heaven. And now he describes her beauty and attributes more thoroughly as they are unveiled. She's surrounded by the glory of God's, God's Shekinah glory, the remember the holy smoke, was previously documented in the wilderness tabernacle. Once again, in Revelation 15, the glory filled the heavenly temple. The glory of God never appears apart from God's presence. Here, the bride is said to have the glory of God. 
God encompasses his bride, the new Jerusalem. She has put on the Lord Jesus Christ and reflects his glory, shining brightly as clear crystal. She's enclosed by a high wall, not used for keeping anyone out or for protection from her enemies, but perhaps to symbolize strength and eternal security. I'm going to cut to the chase. She's surrounded by a series of gates and angels, three sets on each side of the four sides of the city, north, south, east, and west. And you heard all those descriptions. The three gates in each wall around the city is indicative of the earthly traveling tabernacle in Moses' day when God prescribed three tribes to encamp on each of the four sides of the tabernacle. And she's built on 12 foundations named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Both the company of people making up the saved of ancient Israel as represented by the tribal names inscribed on the gates and the redeemed that lived in Jesus' day as represented by the 12 apostles' names inscribed in the city's foundations collectively represents the inhabitants of the city. Those believers that trusted in the blood of the Lamb both before and after Christ lived are represented in the very foundational structures of the city. Her dimensions are humongous, indicating that her master builder architect can be none other than Almighty God. The city is built in a perfect cube with every side measuring 1,380 miles in length. That means its height, width, and length are each 1,380 miles. The most holy place of Solomon's temple, God's earthly dwelling place, was constructed as a perfect cube, just as, just as this will be. Since the glorified bodies of the saints will no longer be subject to gravitational forces, like in the case of angels, we will easily traverse vertically to the heights of the city. Her walls are 216 feet in thickness, according to the angel's measurement. Unimaginable. No wall ever built has been 216 feet thick. In the original computations throughout this passage is the repeated appearance of the number 12. 12 angels, 12 foundations, 12,000 stadia, a wall of 12 cubits. As the number 7 represents completeness, it seems that the number 12 does also, but particularly with regards to God's subdivisions of the corporate whole, like 12 tribes of, equals the whole Israel. That makes sense. Her walls are of jasper. Her buildings and streets are gold. I'm just, her 12 foundations are bedazzled with all the precious stones, some I could not pronounce. Her gates are pearly and indeed each constructed of a single pearl and she has no temple. Doesn't need a temple. She's not in any need of the sun or the moon because of the brightness of God's glory and the lamb will be light enough. And Isaiah 60, it says, violence shall no more be heard in your land, devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The, sh the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor your brightness shall the, shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever the branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I might be glorified. The least one shall become a clan and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will hasten it. Her gates will never be closed because there will be no more night. 
from here to eternity now in Revelation 22, as John now enters the city and begins his descriptive narrative of what's inside the walls, we can only be struck with the beauty therein and the excitement of what's in store for us. Waterfront living. And he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb in the middle of its street. On either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The very centerpiece of New Jerusalem is the throne of God and the Lamb and the mighty inexhaustible waters of the river of life flowing out of it. Without any sea, this river provides whatever hydrologic cycle is necessary for the new earth. The river is again called Catharos, referring to the flawless perfection. The river is not supplied by rainfall, but rather the ongoing creation of water by God as it endlessly flows from his throne. Along the banks of the river is none other than the tree of life, first and only seen in the Garden of Eden, which was created to supply eternal life to mankind before the fall. And we read that in Genesis 3. And she can put it up. I'm just going to keep talking. Now the tree and its fruits are available to all heavenly residents. The tree of life, as it turns out, is the elusive fountain of youth. As each of its 12 kinds of fruits has the same healing, life-giving properties when eaten, the tree of life has signified many things in scripture, always positive. It's um, a fruit of righteousness. Righteous is a tree of life. Whoever captures souls is wise. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but desire fulfilled is a tree of life. A gentle tongue is a tree of life. And happily ever after, verses 3 through 5, there will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve them. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will be no longer any night, and they will not have any need of the light or lamp and the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illuminate them, and they will reign forever and ever. The curse that had plagued the earth and mankind since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden is now irrevocably broken. John reminds us once again that every cursed thing, weeds, thorns, stingers, misunderstandings, disease, wrinkles, all things demonic, they have been eradicated because of the presence of God and of the Lamb. And as we will have the high privilege of serving our Savior forever, it won't be the cushy existence of playing harps on fluffy clouds as depicted in Bugs Bunny. It will be an active life of meaningful work and service. The name of the Lord will be indelibly, indelibly printed on our foreheads, forever reminding us that we belong to him purchased at a high price, bought with his blood. And we will fellowship with him forever. For John living on the prison island of Patmos, surrounded by darkness and the demonic, he is once again struck by the total absence of night and darkness. There's not even need for a candle. And he says, and he said to me, these words are faithful and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. And he said to me, do not do that. I am a fellow servant of yours and of your brothers, the prophets, and of those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Whereas this book began with a blessing to all who would read and hear its words, here we are promised a blessing if we keep the prophecy of the book. 
Jesus states emphatically, I'm coming quickly. So it, so be prepared. Watch. Listen. Keep hold of this book. Don't seal it up. It, time is short. And then he gives us this strange little edict in verse 11. He says, let the one who does wrong still do wrong. And the one who is filthy still be filthy. And let the one who is righteous still practice righteousness. And the one who is holy still keep himself holy. Here, inserted between two passages regarding the eminence and the urgency surrounding the return of Christ, we have this odd edict issued to all mankind. If you're acting ugly, do it more. If you're righteous, be even more righteous. Jesus is encouraging us to examine our lives in light of the urgency of the message and do what we must do. Many who hear the message of revelation and judgment scoff and brand it as ridiculous nonsense. Many who are ultra-educated consider the message of the Bible to be for the poor, superstitious, ignorant. Karl Marx described it as the opium of the masses. As believers in tune with the Spirit, we are stirred to deeper levels of passionate belief and discipleship when we study Revelation. We are watching and ready and bringing with us all who will hear, all who will come. But this is a paradox, and some will not come. 2 Corinthians says, To one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? And then for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Daniel tells us many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And our final recap, he says, Behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to reward each one as his work deserves. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they will have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral persons, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices lying. So Jesus recaps the bottom line of the revelation and indeed of the entire Bible. I'm coming with haste. The faithful will be rewarded. It all begins and ends with me. Heaven awaits the obedient. Hell awaits the unrighteous. Final credits, Jesus says in verse 16, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus brings the revelation to a close, hearkening back to the beginning passages in Revelation 1 through 3 as he addressed the churches. This letter is specifically meant for the church. And Jesus specifies himself as the sender, the bright morning star. Interesting to note is that Jesus identifies himself here as the rising star on the horizon of a coming new day. Though Satan was named Lucifer, meaning day star, Jesus cinches his own position as the star that shines brighter than all others and rises to declare the dawn of eternal day. In his final invitation in verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without cost. So who is being invited to come? First of all, Jesus. He has promised to come quickly three times in this chapter alone. But here the Holy Spirit and the bride, who is indwelled by the Spirit, they join together in their invitation to Jesus, and they say, come. 
We have longed for his coming, and now more than ever. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. This prayer of invitation by the Holy Spirit is his only recorded prayer in the Bible. We know the Spirit intercedes for the believer in times of infirmity and distress, but here we see his actual prayer on our behalf as he pleads with Jesus to come. The second invitation is that of Jesus seeking those who hear the message of salvation to come. All who thirst for the living water are invited to come and drink freely. Last verses of Revelation 18 through 21. Signed, sealed, delivered. I testify to everyone who hears the word of, words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city, which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. all. Amen. You have the severe warning in verse 18 given to anyone adding to the prophecy all the plagues of the book. A separate warning in verse 19 given to the person who might minimize or subtract from the message of revelation. God will subtract his name from the book of life. Jesus ends his testimony with his promise to come quickly in verse 20. He's testified to the truth and now the court rests until the matters of the book are completed. There is nothing left to say that has not been said from Genesis through Revelation. John adds his own postscript, extending grace to all in verse 21. Christ has drawn us to himself by grace. We have been sustained by grace every day. We are forgiven through grace when we, when we fail him. Indeed, the grace of our Lord is with us. 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Amen. So be it. Y'all go home and get some rest. I just want to say thank you everybody for being here for the, the final part of the book of Revelation. And I want to encourage you not to miss next week as we go into depth about the millennial reign. A lot of Old Testament scriptures. We're going to talk about the great white throne judgment in more detail about what life's going to be like in eternity. We're going to talk about what we're going to be doing. Just all the, the details of, of something that we're never really studied about or talk about or... And uh, I've been studying for a couple of weeks, and I'm at like 46 pages of notes. So I'm trying to trim it down, but, but I'm just saying you, you don't want to miss it. And also, we will have these classes available on DVD. We're just still trying to work that out. We may have a list to sign up next week or something, so just be on the lookout for that. But once again, thank you for being with us throughout all these classes. You're getting very good education, as you can see. And uh, we just want to thank you all once again and see you next week. And listen, let's pray. Let's pray. Yeah. I don't know if this is on it's still. Not, it's not. It's not. Oh, okay. It wasn't on. Okay. okay, let's pray. So, Father, we um, just thank you for this entire revelation, Lord. We ask that you would take the words therein and help us to apply them to our hearts. Help us to have a little bit more knowledge so that we don't have to fear 
But Father, I pray that you would help us because of what we know to reach out to the people that you have placed in our sphere of influence so we can keep them from having to endure these horrifying things that are to come. Help us to be diligent, Lord, to share the message of hope with all those in our lives. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless these that have heard. I pray that you would multiply their time that they have spent here. I pray that you would redeem that time when they get home tonight. Just give them an extra hour or so. And I just thank you, Lord, for each listening ear. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.